Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. This is Tim Staples of Catholic Answers. I'm excited to let you know that I also teach high school apologetics for homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. There are also recorded independent learning courses at homeschoolconnections.com. Whether you take apologetics with me, literature with Joseph Pierce, or philosophy with Bill Donahue, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, it's a great way to get Catholic learning for your family. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast, and I'm your host, Regina Pontus. Today, I have the wonderful opportunity to talk to a woman by the name of Tammy Peterson. The name might sound familiar to you. She is the loving wife of Jordan Peterson, who is a renowned clinical psychologist, and he's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He has a great book, and it's titled 12 Rules and Antidote." Chaos. He's traveled worldwide talking about it. He's got a very successful YouTube channel. Her life has been an amazing journey. She is a massage therapist. She's got two wonderful children, Michaela and Jordan. She has an amazing story of a physical health journey right after or during the tour. And it's just an amazing, amazing story. I'm so happy that she was willing to share it with me. So profound. I hope you get out of it what I did. It's an amazing exploration into the human soul and how to um, overcome adversity and God's divine mercy. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Tammy Peterson. Tammy, welcome to the Will Within podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for the invitation, Regina. Oh, thank you, my friend. So listen, you match as a private individual. I love your story, especially because you're such a private individual who has gone through something so unique, you match every aspect of the hope, will, perseverance, and inspiration. And I wanted you to share that story with everybody because I think it will touch so many people's lives and allow them to open up and express how they are doing as well in their spiritual journey or their relationship with their creator or their God. Thank you for the opportunity. So tell me about your upbringing, um, your religious aspects, if, if there was any, and also you just general development, and then we can get to the talk. Okay. Um, I grew up in northern Alberta. Um, my parents were married just out of high school, and my father worked as a, a relief agent for the northern Alberta Railway, and so he moved around from little town to little town in northern Alberta until he had four children. I was the fourth child, and then we settled, and he gave up the railway and took on an insurance and real estate business. Um, my mother stayed at home until I was a small girl, and then she went back to work as well. She worked as a bookkeeper for the school division. Northern Alberta was an interesting place to grow up because uh, it was a rural community. Uh, it was an agricultural community, and it's quite far north, but the way that the winds blow, you can grow wheat and barley and oats up north for a longer season than you can, say, in Saskatchewan or Manitoba. And so we lived at quite a high altitude. The little town we were grew up in was called Fairview, and you could see 50 miles away. At night, you could see lights on in little towns 50 miles away. It was beautiful. But there was also natural gas and oil up there. And so when I was a teenager, that was bringing in a lot of money. 
and a lot of opportunity and everything else that goes along with it, a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol. So it was kind of a wild place. You know, I had a 10 speed and I remember I went to meet some friends at the local bar and I went in to say that I had no time. And when I got out, my bicycle was gone. So that was just, you know, it it went from a sleepy little town to a place that I couldn't um, really, I couldn't really get a grip on. So, you know, it, it ended up that 1979 was the time of most drug use in North America. And that was when I was 18 years old. So a lot of the uh, oil riggers came from many different places. They came from Newfoundland, they came from Colombia. So they came from all over the place and they brought with them their drugs. And so unless you were very sheltered and I wasn't a very sheltered child, then that was there. And I was a quite an, uh, an open-minded person. So of course I tried everything that was there to try. And um, luckily I had not. Can I interrupt you? What was your first exposure to that environment with drugs? Oh, that was my cousin. I had a cousin, believe it or not. So we, we drove over to uh, BC, to British Columbia, and that was just a 45-minute drive. So we were very close to British Columbia. And my father had a cousin there who was a, uh, a doctor, and one of his sons was a little bit older than me. I don't know how many years older than me, but not very many. And when I was 13, he took me and uh, his sister and a number of friends out for a car ride and introduced me to marijuana. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first time. Um, alcohol was probably right around the same time, right around the same time. I can remember the first time I had a drink. I had, we had a, uh, my sisters and brothers all left. And of course, we lived in a wee little town. So when we left, we left to Edmonton, which is a six hour drive away. So when I was 12, my siblings were all gone and I was home alone and my parents were working. And so I spent a lot of time just with friends. And I was actually five years younger than my closest sibling. So I grew up with friends more than I did with my siblings. I went, there was a girl living with us, a billet, because Fairview, although it was 2000 people and so far away, it was bigger than a number of the communities around that had no high school. So we had people that would billet in town during the week and then go home on the weekends. And we had a nice young woman come and stay with us. She was in grade 10 and I was in grade eight. And she took me out one night to visit some friends that she had met on the hockey team. And I loved going to watch hockey games. So I spent a lot of time at the arena and I knew who this person was. And I was quite uh, shocked that I was going to be invited to go. So I went and they offered me vodka and I sat in the chair and drank vodka and orange juice. And when I got up to go to the bathroom, I was dizzy. I had no idea what this stuff was. And I got home that night. She must have taken me home. But I didn't get sick or anything. And I thought, that's not a good sign. So I don't think alcohol is a very good thing for me to drink. Because I I had drank plenty and I was plenty drunk. It was very disconcerting. So although I did drink after that, I was pretty careful about how much I had. Besides that, we used to have to, if we wanted to go to a dance or if we wanted to go to dances usually in high school, we would have to drive 30 miles to the next town often. And so if there was drinking going on, then you wouldn't get home. So my dad's rule was I could go to the dance once I was in high school. I could go to the dance, but I had to make sure I got home. So I used to sit by the driver and make sure if he was drunk that I could steer the steering wheel so that I could... This is before designated drivers. I read around the time it doesn't. You know, people used to, because they knew I didn't drink, my friends, they would always say, we'll get drunk, Regina will drive. Yeah, yeah, pretty wild place, pretty wild place. So I got through high school, and I think I can say I got through high school because my aunt taught me yoga. Mm -hmm. She introduced me to yoga when I was 13. I went out there to visit her near Edmonton, and she had a daughter one year older and another one a couple of years younger. I spent most of my time there in the summertime and they lived on a farm and she wanted us to tear down the pig barn in the afternoons. But in the mornings she taught us yoga and uh, that was curious. I was curious about that. She gave me a book and when I went home, I studied that book and I did yoga every day. And so 
I had something that I, I had a compass a little, you know, so that I would come home in the evenings. Say I had gone out with my friends and had a couple of drinks. I'd come home and I would try to practice my yoga before I went to bed. And if I'd had too much to drink, of course, you can't do yoga and you can't center yourself. So it was a very good compass for me to see whether I had gone too far or not. And I'm very thankful to her for that. Um, my Christian uh, upbringing, uh, we were baptized in the uh, United Church. I went to Sunday school uh, as a child. Um, I went to the Seventh-day Adventist for, for summer, sometimes for a little summer camp. So there were a number of different denominations in, in Fairview. But I didn't, I didn't go after I was, I don't know, I think I must have been 15. I stopped going to church. Uh, my family didn't go to church. My mom didn't go. My dad didn't go. My sisters had gone, but then they were gone off to university. So there was no one in my family that went to church anymore. And I wasn't, I liked the, the Bible stories when I was young, but then I didn't, I didn't understand the, what was going on and I didn't have good guidance. So I didn't continue. Who introduced but you to my that? grandmother's, what's that? Who introduced you to that aspect? Um, that would have been my mother. Okay. That would have been my mother, but she stopped going. My dad didn't go, and she was very shy. My mom, so um, she stopped going as well. So there was really wasn't any family uh, supporting me at church. So I, I stopped going as well. My grandmothers, both on my dad's side and my mom's side, were religious. They were both Protestant and my grandmother on my mom's side especially sung in the choir until she was very elderly and she was quite devout my grandmother on my dad's side she was religious but she was more of a spiritual person i would say mm -hmm. she uh it was funny because when i was a teenager and i'd lost my way and i i came and i asked her i said you know when you were first married and you had a child in alberta in February, your house burnt down and you got outside with your baby and you said, okay, everything's okay. And I said, Grandma, how can you have that point of view? How could you just, you know, move on from there? And she said, she told me the serenity prayer. Mm. God grant you the, the serenity. And uh, I'd never heard that prayer before and I never heard it again until I heard it in AA. Wow. I, and so, so I don't know how she knew that prayer except for it's a well-known prayer. Mm -hmm. And and I asked her, I said, how do you know the difference between what you can change and you can't change? And she said, well, that's the thing you'll have to figure out. So she never <laughs> told me. Maybe she didn't know. She, was, she wanted you to have your own journey with that, yeah. <laughs> she did. She wanted to have my own journey. Yeah, yeah. And my dad wanted me to have my own journey. He was he was uh, a good guy, but he he let us go. He just told us to be smart. I could have used more guidance, I think. But then again, we all grew up to be pretty independent people. So maybe it went as well as it could. It went as it went like it did anyway, and that's as well as it could have gone. Right. So I went off to university. Uh, I didn't really want to stay in Alberta. So I went to McGill. I went to Montreal. Uh, I did a year there in art, and I liked it. But that was in 1980, and the separatist movement was quite strong at that point, And it was not possible for me to work in Montreal and I was supporting myself so I moved um, I moved back to Edmonton for a year and then I moved back to Ottawa I really liked it out east and uh, but I had to have somewhere where I could get a job so I moved to Ottawa which was only two hours from Montreal I could go there on the weekend if I wanted and I worked for a year and then I went and I got my science degree so um, and my mom sent me a little bit of money monthly and that was fairly helpful. So I studied a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology because my focus was yoga. And right. I wanted to know how I could bring yoga into uh, my career and my more studious life. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if it could, if those two things could go together. And of course they could. So when I left the university, I became a massage therapist. So I ended up being a massage therapist and I worked as a yoga teacher. That was good. I really found a lot of meaning in what I did. And I worked as a massage therapist for, you know, 25 years or so. Now, when I finished my university degree, was the first time I was sick. I was 
25 and um, I had an ovary that was bothering me and they did a scan and they saw that there was a shadow on one of my ovaries and uh, told me that on the phone, told me over the phone that I probably had cancer. And so I walked to the doctor's office in kind of a funeral march mm. and I went <laughs> like not not knowing what was going to happen. And they just told me that uh, there was something on my ovary. And so I was learning massage from a massage therapist in my home at that point. And he said he'd been in Florida working in the Keys and come up to Ottawa. He was an artist and a massage therapist. And he said, well, let's do a meditation for you. And he said, I want you to breathe in white light and I want you to breathe it down into your abdomen to your ovary then you can continually do that and I'm and he was just going to uh, touch my feet along in a reflexology way along what would be the birth canal and so he was trying to take me back to a I think a very calm place Mm -hmm. and so I did that for about two hours I brought in a white light and it would it was like it was a ribbon around my ovary I was spinning it around my ovary and I asked it not to be afraid of me, and I asked it what it was what was wrong, and I asked it questions trying to communicate. And at some point, I got quite a severe pain on the other side, on my right side. And when I went for my surgery, and they found out that I had a dermoid cyst, so it was a solid cyst. That's why they thought it was cancer. It wasn't a clear fluid cyst. Uh, it was quite small. They had thought it was the size of a softball and it was really the size of a, a ping pong ball. Mm. So I think that a lot of the spirit that was in it left me when I did this meditation. I agree with you. The, the visual that you just shared is powerful. It's a powerful image. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was powerful. And uh, it's interesting that you agree with me. Because, <laughs> oh, you know, it's fabulous. It's very personal. It's a very personal experience and hard to. Uh, share because because it's it's so personal you know there's nothing you can see but I felt everything and I saw thank you for sharing it you're welcome (laughs) you're welcome well the reason I share that is because later when I had my more severe illness I used that same meditation the night before my surgery Mm -hmm. and I found it super helpful so after I had that surgery the first time I finished my university and then I went to Montreal And uh, my friend from home that I'd known since I was eight years old, he was getting his PhD in Montreal. And he'd asked me to marry him a couple of times. And I thought, well, it was probably time to get married. He seemed to be getting his life together. He was getting a PhD. So I thought he was getting, you know, mature enough that it was it was Mm -hmm. time. And I was getting mature enough that it was time to get married. And so I went to Montreal and we did get married uh, a year or two later. And he got his PhD. I got pregnant. I had my daughter. And then he got finished his postdoc, moved to Boston. So we lived in Boston from 92 to 98, 93 to 98. And I had my son in 93. And so it was really lovely to live in Boston. Uh, I think that's just a magical place where you are. And we lived in Arlington. We moved I know, Ar- it's the same place, yeah. And we lived on Ottawa Road. Ottawa Road, okay. Now, I'm at, I'm at Mass Ave. Are you at Park Ave? You're up near the Heights? Yes, Arlington. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah Arlington Heights. Park Ave, yeah. Oh, great. it was lovely it's there. It's changed, changed a bit, but yeah, you're great. You're right. I bet it's changed. <laughs> I bet it's changed. When we were living there, it hadn't changed yet. So it was really yeah. still like it was in the 50s. Yeah, I um. Do you know where the hospital where it used to be the hospital stems? Since hospital up at Summer Street, right kind of behind us, I lived yeah. up behind there. And it's oh, okay. a small little street that every time I got ill and the ambulance had to come, the cars were like, where does this girl live? I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> right. so, so you drive. And the funny thing is I try to explain now to people. I said, you know, when we're living at my house, I feel like I'm up in New Hampshire in the, you uh-huh. know, in the hills and everything. But then you just drive down the street and you're right in the hospital and bustle of urban. So yeah. it, was a good, it was a good community. I loved that community growing up. Oh, yeah. We used to yeah. go to Drumlin Farm, take the yeah. kids to Drumlin Farm, yeah. and, and they, they could see all kinds of animals. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it was very, and then just jumping on the train, going yeah. out of town. So it was you know, 
20 minutes, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, fun it, in Harvard right there. Anyway, oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. It was great. You know, and luckily my husband, he knew when he came there that Harvard brought in uh, new graduates and that you would stay there for your first, uh, first and second four year installment. And then they would search the world to bring in tenured professors. Mm-hmm. So he knew that he wasn't going to stay there. Um, I think he had, like everybody does, hopes that he would stay there because it was a great place. We had He had a wonderful time there. And, and of course, I did too, having two children. It was really amazing. Plus, my everyone was healthy when we were in Boston. You know what I liked about one of your stories? I heard one of your stories. You were talking about equating up where you grew up and seeing the vast, sitting on the top of like a mountainarian thing for miles. And mm-hmm. you equated that to being like a Revere Beach looking out over the ocean. Yeah, and we we would go to Crane Beach. Crane Beach, yeah. Yeah, and we would go there every weekend in the summer and the winter. <laughs> we yeah, good for you. Yeah, nice, nice place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we'd love to come back. If you ever come back, say hi. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd love to. I really, I really, really like it there. And we do have, still have some good friends. And, oh, and uh, my husband has some business associates there. So we do, we do go there now and then. Oh, great. I, I love it. And we had a wonderful time. But eventually, my husband applied for a 10-year position, and it was in, and he wanted to come back to Canada. He wanted to come back to Canada, partly because our family was here, and everyone lived so far apart. Uh, my family lived on, on Vancouver Island, and his family lived in Saskatchewan, and we were in Ontario. We were going to be in Ontario. When we were in Boston, the kids to visit their grandparents was very difficult, so uh, we were hoping to move back to Canada, and then it would be easier to see our families. Yeah. There wouldn't be any border to cross, and it would be more straightforward. And so, um, and also, I think the um, <laughs> the university in Canada, uh, the uh, granting agencies are very different than they are in the states, and it's uh, it's gentler. It's it's more gentle in in Canada. So he came back here. He'd written a book. But that was, I don't, I wouldn't mean to interrupt you, but that's, that's actually okay. not the first time you met him, right? Weren't oh, you like no. eight? We were eight years old when we met. I love that. Yeah. Love very, oh yeah. We used to uh, play, we used to play croquet and we used to play um, baseball in the empty lots behind our house and we played at school. He was in the same, he was a year younger than me, but he was smart and had started school in grade two me when too. he was six. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. His dad taught him to read when he was three, I think. So he uh, he was going along at a, at a good clip in school, and he ended up in my grade. And uh, he was the smartest kid there by far, even when he was eight years old. Sheldon stood, Cooper, number two. Yeah, he stood out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I like oh, that. Oh, that's all right. Sorry, I love how long. You guys have known each other and been together and support. Oh yeah, I think this year we've known each other fifty-two years. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I know. That's I know. It is. It's really something to have spent such amount of time together. And even when we didn't see each other, when I'd go home at Christmas when I was eighteen, nineteen years old, I was living, you know, in Edmonton, and then I was living in Montreal, and I had kind of lost touch with him. But I'd come home at Christmas, and he lived on the same street as me. And when I got home, within 15 minutes, he'd knock, knock on, on the door. door. Yeah. Yeah. How cute. How cute. Isn't that cute? That's so cute. smile. <laughs> yeah. It's so cute. Uh, he likes me. That yeah, that's cute. right. He likes me. That's really nice. I didn't mean to drop you, so go <laughs> ahead. Okay. You're going back to Montreal. It's fun to reminisce yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we went to Montreal. We got married. We moved. We went back to Fairview and had all our family around to get married. We were from the same town. We got married in the church that we grew up in. So that was good. And I had a religious belief. You know, I uh, I went to church in Montreal for a year. I went to, there's a beautiful church on Sherbrooke Street, uh, a United Church. And I went there for a whole year. But the first sermon the next Sunday after a whole year, it was exactly the same sermon I had heard. Oh, yeah, the liturgical calendar. And I, I stopped going because it was going to be the same thing. Yeah. And at that point in my life, I was 
lost. I was still lost. You know, I'd go to church, but I didn't know what I was finding there. I didn't understand the the beauty of repetition. I yeah. didn't under, I didn't understand it. So I didn't go. I didn't continue to go. And I I hoped that we would take our kids to church, but um that didn't happen either. And I didn't enforce it, and I could have, but I didn't. And so there were many things that I didn't do that I could have done that I um didn't take responsibility for which I learned eventually was not the right way to see your life. You know, I, uh, I had grown, my mother, my mother's father had a really rough beginning. His dad left them in Scotland to go to Montreal and work. And eventually he brought his wife and his little boy over. But the night before they arrived, he died in a rooming house fire with all his money. And so when she got there, she had nothing. And so she went to work on a logging camp. She went to cook at a logging camp. And my, uh, her son was uh, abused when he was there with her on the logging camp. So by the time he grew up and became married to my grandmother, uh, he wasn't a happy person. He was quite a distressed person, you know? Yeah, he struggled terribly. And, and he took out some of that that aggression and that that pain um, on his kids. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. Nothing was said about that until my grandmother was nearly, she was 98 when she died, I think in her last year of life. She told us, and not directly, that my mom was, one day she came home from work because she worked as a nurse, and her and my mom was in the back quarter of the of the land that they owned in the woods and was afraid to go home. And so that's all she said. But, you know, we've, we've realized from that, that it was my grandfather that had a hard time controlling his temper. Mm. And so my mother was, you know, my, my dad was a really warm and uh, he was a generous person. He had lots of laughter. He was really a good person. And my mom was a good person in her own way as well, but she was very shy and very fearful. And no wonder. And my dad didn't know what to do with her except for to make jokes and try to make her laugh. Mm. She did a lot. And so I think she had a pretty good life. But this fear that she had, we learned. We learned about that fear. She was very distrustful of men. And it's no wonder. And But I learned all of that from her. So in my marriage, sometimes I would blame other people my husband in particular, for things that I wanted or needed if I wasn't getting them, instead of realizing it was my responsibility, Mm -hmm. right, to get it, everything I want is my responsibility. I can ask God, God can help me, but no, that wasn't what I was doing. I was getting my, what I needed from the people in my life. And if I wasn't getting it from them, well, then... Then blaming them. Yeah, that's right. So that's simply, you know, what what happened. I would say I, my husband helped me a lot with that because he was trained as a psychologist. And uh, I would used to go to visit my sisters and they would argue with me. And I couldn't understand why they were arguing with me. And finally, my husband said, why don't you just try not saying anything and see what happens? Just listen to them. Because I only saw them now and then. They lived on Vancouver Island. I lived in Toronto. I saw them maybe once a year. And we would get in arguments and it was like, what, what is this? So I started just listening and not saying anything. And it really didn't take very long for my sisters to look at me and say, you're a really good mother, you know, Mm. you know, and after they would blame me for being, uh, never doing anything for myself, always having my parents help. And I thought, who are you talking to? I I left home when I was 18 years old, just like you guys did. Mm. And I couldn't understand it, but they grew up in the same family I did. So they were as confused as me. And so we all had a little bit of learning to do and listening helps that a lot. So I I just listened and I probably have listened for 10 or 15 years since and things have gone much better. <laughs> you know, the old uh, adage there is, I don't want to jump ahead of, but in the story, I actually did a book about this with all my experiences and it's in the silence that we hear so much. And we don't yes, allow ourselves exactly. to be silent and not to be able to listen, to converse and say, oh, 
that's interesting. Okay, that's that's what I, that's the road I need to take. I'm going the wrong way. Thank yes. you for your insight. You know? Exactly. You know when when you listen and you wait and you pause, often what you are looking for it will show. It'll show itself. Yes. And but you have to wait. You have to wait and listen, or it doesn't happen because right. it's subtle. It's very, very subtle. You have to be very patient. That's right. And you Sometimes may not you have get to be it. Patient for weeks. Right. You may not actually get yeah. it, but you might get something better. That's the thing. You might say, "Oh, yes, I'm so mad, right. I didn't get that's that." Right. But you know, the other two are open. Yeah. And you're like, "Wow, okay. Why did I want yes, to go exactly. through that door?" You know, the whole time. You yeah. Exactly. I was still wanting to go through the wrong door. Thank you, God, for putting me in the right way. Yeah. So I understand. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, when we were first leaving Montreal and my husband was applying for jobs, he applied for a job at Dalhousie in uh, Nova Scotia and he came back and he didn't get the job and he couldn't understand it. And he was so frustrated. And I said, George, you know, there's probably something better out there. So I knew, I knew to let go of things. I had a little, you know, my, my belief was it was there with me. I just didn't really, I wasn't listening all the time. I was listening some of the time, you know, and then he got a job at Harvard and it was good, you know, so I did try to help him with uh, patience and with listening. Even if I couldn't do it myself, I knew that it was necessary. It was just, I needed a lot more life lessons before I really understood. And the lessons I needed, you know, were, were huge. When um, when I was they, first, they'll be coming up, right? With the, with all of a sudden your daughter getting sick, life wasn't yes, right. All of a sudden, hit you, right, like a brick. When yes, all of a that's your right. Sick. And I think that's how they, they that's how they happen for some people, and probably for us all. I'm, I can only speak from my own experience, but I read your book. I read at least the one where you recount all of the trouble you went through, and uh, you know, there's no shortage of trouble in the world. It it's. Uh, it's everywhere, and all we can all we can do is learn from it, right. and um, be and grateful for the key. lessons that we get. Right, that's why perseverance yes, is exactly. key. That's, that's the title good. of the book. I'm gonna yeah. fuck my book. That was a good good title. I think good that's title. the only reason like why that. I won the award because I like to like the title. Perseverance <laughs> is in the Bible. I don't know. You have quite a bit of perseverance, so I think that you deserve that. Yeah. So I didn't mean to be yeah. <laughs> No, that's okay. You don't have to apologize. It's fun to talk to you. So let's see. So I'm married and I have children and we moved from Boston to Toronto. And my daughter started to not be well and we couldn't we didn't know what was wrong with her. But by the time she was eight, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and severe rheumatoid arthritis. We took I took her to First of all, I took her to a physiotherapist and she tried to move her heel and she said her heel wouldn't move and she wanted me and she said, this looks like arthritis to me. And I was devastated. I was shocked because I I had known a young girl in my hometown who had arthritis and oh God, she had just terribly swollen joints and she couldn't move. It was so sad. And um so I was grieving right away when I heard, because this little girl, eight years old, I thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And so I took her to, eventually, they said, just the next time you, you notice a flare-up, take her to sick kids to emergency, and they'll bring a rheumatologist down, and then you'll get into the hospital that way. There's always funny ways to get into hospitals, but emergency seems to be the way that you get in. Anyway, that's what happened, and the rheumatologist came down, and they checked all her joints and she had arthritis in every joint except for her spine. Mm. It was everywhere. It was in her jaw. It was everywhere. And um, she was just a little kid. She thought that she had something that they would give her medication for and then she'd be better. She thought it was just uh, like a flu or something. She didn't know what it was, obviously. And uh, when she was, I think, 10, we finally got a biological, it's called um, etanercept. It was a a drug that they used to dampen the immune system. And she uh, she was nearly in a wheelchair that year when we took her to the zoo on her birthday. I took her in a wheelchair 
And then that summer, after I got her the Atanasep, she had it from January till April. I put her on a baseball team and a soccer team and just watched her run all summer. And that was, uh, you know, a gift from God, that's for sure. But I guess the damage had already been done because by the time she was 17, her hip and her ankle had no cartilage left. And so How she common could, is that? Is the childhood rheumatoid arthritis? It, it's not that common. Oh, no. no, it's not. Thank goodness it's not that common. And you know but the thing about children, enough, common enough that yeah. there are people who have it. And the thing about kids is they're so resilient, though. They're just like, oh, I'm in pain, but I'm going to fight yeah. through it. You she didn't know. Yeah, when's it going to get better, Mom? And it goes along with it. Yeah. You know? Oh, I think she was probably, uh, I don't know when she said this, but she was a teenager. And she said, Mom, was this little piggy supposed to hurt? Ooh, <laughs> like, oh, oh, dear. Oh. She had her, she had a lot of pain, and in her short life, she had a lot of pain. Um, you know, luckily now, she changed her diet, and the and the arthritis is in remission, and so now, as far as I know, she's pretty much pain free. So, I'm very very thankful for that. Um, I spent a lot of time with her when she was young, going from natural path to I just looked everywhere. Naturopaths and mom said she said I took her to all sorts of quacks. I just took her to whoever I could find that might have an inkling of what to do. And I really, I really did think that food had something to do with it. But it ended up it was all carbohydrates. Mm. And how was anybody going to figure that out? You know, I didn't know that carbohydrates are inflammatory. And now, now I realize just from this last thing that's happened with our family, if you're taking. Uh, antidepressants or an anti-anxiety drug or something that has to do with the brain and you get off the drug too soon and you can't imagine how slowly you have to get off those drugs for it not to be too soon then your brain is a little bit inflamed and if you eat any carbohydrates it inflames the brain more really yeah really oh a lot of the i think a lot of the people you see in the city who are so wrecked are probably on those drugs and you know sometimes they have the drugs sometimes they don't you can't go on and off those drugs because your brain doesn't your brain is too delicate for that mm-hmm. so it's you know, very between that and you said something about the food pyramid you know we with you and i were growing up the food pyramid was you know all breads and all that kind of stuff it's the yes. opposite it's the opposite of what it should have been yeah That's isn't that something the situation we have right now there's a yeah. movie um what's the title Food Inc. I think it is, and it talked even about sugar and how aspects of sugar it had it affects the brain the same way as cocaine. Right. It shows huh. the MRI findings, and wow. that's the stuff that we grew up. Junk food is what we grew up on. Oh yeah, we processed food is what we grew up on. Yeah, I was a I was a great chef. I couldn't I could care less if I had dinner, but I could sure cook dessert. Mm, I love yeah, dessert. Baking you know? thing. Right. So yeah. Okay. Wow. Cookies and all the all the little oh we just little used to eat candy every yourself. day, and my mom she didn't even bring home uh, bags of cookies. We had to make them by scratch, but boy, we made them every day, mm. and didn't know any better. Mm. Actually, my mom died of uh, prefrontal dementia. Oh no! And uh, oh, thank you. She she died in two thousand and seven, but by then, by by then by the time I was forty. So it's so by 2000, by 2000, that was 20 years ago, uh, I had stopped eating grains because I have also have celiac disease. Okay. Uh, my, in, from my, my Irish ancestry. I was always falling asleep whenever I ate bread. <laughs> so I eventually figured out that it was bread. I never suspected it. You know, I gave up sugar one year and I gave up meat one year. Mm. Nothing really seemed to help, but then I gave up bread and I felt much much better I couldn't believe it my mother at the end of her life she would if you fed her she would keep food in the pockets in her cheeks you know (laughs) so you had to be careful of not giving her too much food because you didn't know if she was swallowing it or not but if you gave her a cinnamon bun she ate that like she was a queen eating something her her whole system now relied on sugar only and I've seen that with other people. I had a pharmacist that I knew, and I was at 
one of these box stores, I can't remember, and she was there with her dad, and her dad had dementia, and he was walking around the store with a platter of buns, sweet buns. In, you know, and I just thought, oh, my God, it's just sugar. Like, there's yeah. sugar everywhere, and it's causing a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. a real lot of trouble, and we're only just starting to figure that out. But at least we're starting to figure that out. I'm happy that we're starting to figure it out. <laughs> I agree. I agree, yeah. So anyway, Michaela grew up, and she got her life together. And my son, he was pretty healthy. He was a pretty healthy little guy, and he grew up. And now I have two grandkids. I have a granddaughter who's three, and a grandson who's 10 months old. Oh, fun ages. Fun ages. And they yeah. live in Toronto, so I see them. Yay. I see them. And I babysit them, and it's wonderful. So I'm very okay, blessed. Do you and, have a little bubble now? With yeah, we have a little bubble guys. with them. There you go. Well, my husband and my daughter and her family have all had COVID. They, oh, I'm sorry. Well, they, they recovered all right, I, oh. I hope. Um, and I've had the vaccine now. So, oh, good. so it's only my son and his wife that haven't had the disease and they haven't had a vaccine so hopefully we can keep them safe mm-hmm. yeah so I was a massage therapist I gave it up when I got arthritis and I gave up carbohydrates because I had arthritis and my arthritis was became a lot better but then I'd given up massage and I really loved being a massage therapist and I took me about six months of wondering what I was going to do with my life because I had given it up that I decided that I would help my husband with his book because he had written a book and it looked like, and he was, you know, he had written another book. He was still teaching. He still had clinical clients. He was very busy. And I thought that I could get more behind him than I was, support him even more than I, than I was. What was and the then, time frame? This was probably about 2014. 14, okay. Yeah. And so then it was 2016 that uh, his book was going to come out and he put a video up on YouTube and and then became very well known. And at that point, I was we were all, my I was working for him and so was my daughter. It was busy. It was very busy. And then I traveled with him on his book tour. And that was really fun. We went all over the world. It was a great experience. But um, in the middle of that, I went to Croatia with my sister on a walking tour. And when I came home two weeks later, I had a fever and I had gastrointestinal trouble. And I went to the doctor and they did a, a scan and found a shadow on my kidney. And I ended up having a, a bacterial infection that I that I dealt with before surgery, but during our book tour, I had to come back for a biopsy. And so it was kind of, I was kind of sick during that time, but not sick enough not to go. (laughs) I went anyway. Mm -hmm. And it it was lovely. I probably went to 150 of his lectures. And I really, (laughs) that's that's a lot of lectures. And they were, oh, about that many. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, a lot. And I think that my, Spiritual insight was really helped by all of those lectures that I listened to. I think it primed me for being open to God when I when I really needed Him in a desperate way. I've actually the experience you know, I, of seeing all these people connecting with your husband in such a way and talking to him about their uh, their lives and their their concerns and their expectations and. They were looking for something new, striving for something. So to see all that really opens your eyes to people who are searching in this life for something. Yes, that's for sure. And I was searching. I was always wondering, what am I doing here? I mean, I'm helping my husband, but why am I here? So I was doing a lot of questioning. Why am I here? What What is my purpose here? And um, I really asked that question the whole time we were on tour. Mm. I was helping him, and that was good, but I wondered what what. I, which direction I was supposed to go. I came back and had surgery and they took a parsh, they took a piece of my left kidney, but when they biopsied it and I came for my six week checkup, they said, actually, that wasn't what I had. I didn't have renal cell carcinoma. I had a Bellini tumor and it was, I had like 11 months to live. So it was 
and there was no radiation or chemo. There was just surgery. Because people die from this type of cancer, usually they don't get a chance to treat it. So they haven't found anything that works for it to help with it. So uh, that was, I thought, okay, I'm 57 or something. I guess I've lived 57 years and that's pretty good. Um, I guess I'm going to die. So I thought, okay, I'm going to die. We were, so we were in shock I was, because I thought I was getting better and we thought we'd got through the cancer scare. You know how that, how it is. And, uh, when I came home to tell my son and my daughter that I'd had this prognosis of 11 months to live and I saw the pain on their faces, it was enough for me to question my, uh, attitude. You know, it was, it was, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not, I don't know. I had an insight from, from God. It's like, wait a minute. I'm not seeing this right. This isn't, you know, I'm sick, but this isn't about me. And I'd never known that before. I, I had grown up in a, in a, uh, a life of self-will. And it had served me so far, I thought. But at this point, my self-will was failing me completely. And I recognized that my place was of service to my family and actually to anyone who, who, uh, who I could help. And have you ever heard of I mean, it was suffering. Sorry, have you yes. ever heard of redemptive, redemptive suffering? Why don't you tell me about it a little bit? Redemptive suffering is is when you recognize all of a sudden that which you, the pain and suffering that you're going to have to endure would be for the service or soul saving aspect of another. And it's almost like when you said that about your children's response, it's like a, a light switched and you said. I, I need to be in service to them. I, I, the, the pain or whatever I'll endure is because of all these people. And since love is the aspect of everything that goes on in that world, that that, that kicked in for you, that element of service to them. And to one yeah, it kicked to in. Suffer through right. your, your, to suffer through your pain for them, basically. For well, and I, I recognized, I thought, oh, these people that go through all this pain, they go through, you know, the cancer... Uh, surgery and then they go through radiation and chemo and why did they do all of that it's because because life is uh it's a life of service mm. for you do what you can to survive mm-hmm. not for yourself particularly mm. but for all of the people in your life that's why you live that's why and it was it never been brought home well, and it wasn't like I knew, see, this is why I think, now, where did that thought come from? Because I hadn't, I hadn't been, you know, searching for that truth. It just came to me. It was a, you know, it was a revelation. And, and I'm very Tiffany's grateful happen for that it way. because, you know, yeah. Tiffany's are great, they happen that way. Yeah, they happen that way. And I've probably had small, you know, small epiphanies my whole life, but that's, I never had anything like that happen where my whole my whole frame of reference changed on a dime. And that was the that was the beginning of my recovery even though that was <laughs> it, even though it looked like I was going to uh undergo a lot of suffering it was still the beginning to my recovery. You know, it wasn't it wasn't my it wasn't the recovery from the surgery or from the abdominal leak, it was the recovery from my attitude, um, my self-will, you know, my my selfish attitude to realize that I needed to have an attitude towards God mm. always if I was going to live any further in this life successfully. It seemed obvious to me that there was no other choice that that was the right choice. It was just the right choice. That's I guess when all the choices were gone, it was the right choice. Mm. And and like I said, yeah. in silence, you just realized, wait a minute, this is this is what it's all about. This is what I have to listen. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to learn for all those years, listening in the silence and not hearing hearing little things here and there, but 
really recognizing right then that, yes, okay, this is what I need to focus on. This is what I was missing. This is what I felt yeah. disconnected from. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you know, because I, I took care of my daughter when she was sick. I, I had a massage table at the end of her bed mm. when she was 15, and I drove her everywhere. She couldn't walk again, you know, after being a little kid and not being able to walk. Then she couldn't walk again when she was 17. And I devoted myself completely to her so that I could keep her, uh, give her any kind of relief um, when she was ill. And I spent my time with my husband on his tour and I was the person who made every day go with no hiccups mm -hmm. and it went really well but this was just a an entirely different and more profound change of attitude it it wasn't just that I was helping people it wasn't that anymore it was that there I don't know it was a profound sense of whew, God, it was just a sense of God and, and God being the one and that I was a servant. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so hard to articulate to other people when you say yourself. <laughs> I know. I, I have the same people say, just spit it out. And I'm like, ah, uh. <laughs> you know, how can I? It's almost like when people say, if you think um, what you see is a picture of God, of using the most beautiful thing, that's not even a tenth of what it is. You know, right. a millionth of what it is. Same kind of thing when you're trying to explain the situation when something like that happens to you, because it's happened to me too. So all of a yeah. sudden, all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, people are like, just explain. And I'm like, no, I can't really do it right now. I can't really articulate it. No, because it's not of this a dimension. It's right. a fourth, exactly. it raises the fourth dimension. It's, thank you. <laughs> Right? Spot on, sister. Fourth dimension. Yeah. yeah. We live in the third dimension, and all we do is strive to be in the fourth dimension. Mm -hmm. We know we're away from something. We know we're not complete until we get back to that essence. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. When we're a baby and we're not born, we're complete. We're yeah, still in exactly. that fourth dimension. And then we, we get, we're born, and we cry, mm -hmm. and we and we search to be back. Mm -hmm. with God again until we die. I'm with you 100%. Yeah, and it seems that way to me. And, and you know, it just seems that way to me. Uh, that's just what happened. Uh, I know that I've spent a lot of time meditating. I've meditated really since I was 13 years old. I've meditated. Well, yoga uh, is a religious element, you know. Mm -hmm. you, just, you know, even though you still say, I, I wasn't religious. I didn't go to church. Well, yoga is a practice that is from yes. spiritual. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny because when the when it really was when the chips were really down, it was my Christian upbringing that came back to me, mm. and that was when I was quite young, and it wasn't very thorough. But even that was enough. Even that was enough, you know, just being baptized and learning the stories. You know, I think I, I spent my life searching for God. I'm sure I did. Um, but I was always holding back a little bit of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Listen, tell me about Queenie. About Real briefly, Queenie. I love Queenie. Queenie. Not that we have yeah. the same name, but, you know, I like her. Yeah, I'm going for a walk with her at three. Yeah. Give so, her my best. I will. <laughs> Queenie, yeah, Queenie. You know, she just showed up in my life. She was a she was a fan of my husband, so she came to the house uh, years ago after he was public to um, to give us little gifts. And she'd go for a walk with you know. She's just very kind and very open, very smiley. And when I was sick, she just came to the hospital one day. But she brought a rosary with her, an extra rosary, and asked if I wanted to pray the rosary. And she brought me a little leaflet that would tell me how to pray the rosary. And I, she set me right up. And so every day she came at 10 a.m., every day for five weeks. Wow, wow. And prayed the rosary with me every day. Yeah, I know. Did you ever ask her what motivated her to do that? I'll ask like, her. Did today. she get her some kind of a location or... Not a because why would God tell it directly to you? But you know what I mean. Did she have yeah. a strong sense of um, 
saying, God, something's calling me to do this. I think that she does follow God in what he calls her to do. I think that's probably, but I'll ask her today. Yeah, you should. I will. I'll ask her. That's a good question. She always asks me good questions. I'll ask her questions. Well, she's doing the, I'm having quite a good time with her. I've uh, spoken to, um, she had a a workshop called Navigate that had um, many, many 20, 20 year old women. And I spoke to them and told them my story. And now I'm going to speak to girls that are between 13 and 15. That's great. That's what I was going to ask you. That was my next question. So now that you've had this experience, what do you what do you want to do with it? Because you've always followed somebody that was public and supported somebody that's public. How do you feel about going from a private individual into going into the public realm to share your story? Well, when I was in the hospital, I prayed to God and I asked him if I if he would let me live that I would share my I'd share what I knew mm-hmm. with people. And so that's what I'm doing. You know, you were you were supposed to read a book write a book you were supposed to write a book and i'm supposed to share with people mm. that's why i created this podcast because after i wrote the book I yeah. was like, well, now what do i do what is my next thing and somebody who's not even religious or my spiritual said to me um i'm getting an awful sensation that not not awful being bad but a, a strong sensation i need to tell you something and i said what because you're supposed to do a podcast <laughs> and i said get out of here i know nothing about podcasts I don't care about podcasts. She said, no, seriously. And then the next week when she came back, I had all the stuff. She was like, what's that? <laughs> and I said, well, it's all stuff for the podcast. And I just started it. Good for you. So, yeah, you know, I mean, you got to look for a journey to be able to bring together and have people share their own stories. That was the whole motivation for doing the book. Now in for talking to people like you. Well. So we can all share our stories. We don't go through the things that we've gone through and then just move on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. These. I mean, you went through what twelve? Wasn't it twelve years of medical intervention? Yeah, twenty. Twenty. Mm-hmm. Right. Twenty years. Yeah. You don't just turn your back on that because that's that was our. I don't know. That was our holy grail. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So tell me your. My. I'm gonna close this up. Tell me your mantra. Thy will be done. Pretty simple. But if I find my mind is going places that I don't want it to go, uh, or that I, if I recognize I'm thinking about trying to fix something or control something, or, uh, or if I'm worried about something or fearful of anything, I just say, Thy will be done. Mm. And that brings me back to God. And that's so, what it's all about. yeah. That's what it's all about. Okay, I've interviewed, I don't know, 20 people, but almost, almost 30. That's the best mantra I've heard, to be honest with you. That's the most beautiful <laughs> one. You, you got it. You get the prize right now. That's great. So listen, oh, I'm going to close because, as I said, we only do a half an hour, but we've gone an hour already because this has been an exciting yeah. talk. So I'll, we'll close it up. But is there any contacts or websites or people can get in touch with you or to talk to you in have you come share your stories with them? I have I have a new YouTube channel that I'm putting Yay. talks up on. Great. I do. Maybe Eric can Eric can tell you about that. Okay. Do you know the name of it yet or No, I don't. It's new. So I All right. Well Eric and I are gonna communicate really well so okay. people can get out there and listen to it. Well, this has been okay. an absolute joy. Tammy, I've loved having talk with you. <laughs> thank you so much. God bless you. I wanna take the time to thank Tammy Peterson, what a wonderful woman, very private, but was thrust into the public sphere when she was helping her husband and then was going through that health crisis. I'm sure the prayers of millions of people worldwide really helped sustain her, and I'm sure she thanks everybody for them. I loved the ability for her to really gain perspective of God's great mercy and how it is now impacted her life. So next time, we're going to be talking to Jim Walbrook. He's going to talk to us about his addiction and what he's been doing afterwards to help the community. And if you really like this podcast, I hope you are enjoying it. Make sure to hit the subscribe button. Listen to it on any one of your favorite apps to get the podcast. And feel free to email me at the podcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or just want to give us some feedback, I'm 
receiving some really wonderful feedback, and I'm very, very inspired by the fact that there's a couple of thousand downloads that we've already had. So we're looking, we're looking up. I'm loving people sharing their stories. So thank you once again to everybody that has taken the opportunity to listen. And until next time, my Will Within family, be blessed. This episode is brought to you by Hallow, the number one Catholic app. Hallow has 1,000 audio-guided prayers and meditations for you to deepen your relationship with God. To listen to all of the Hallow meditations for free for 30 days, head to hallow.com slash breadbox.